I wonder, <clears throat> what's the hardest thing that you've done? Some of you might be doing something like running an, an ultra marathon, might be ending a relationship, or maybe the hardest thing is starting a, a relationship. The hardest thing you've done might be having to bury a child or to finish a degree. Maybe it was standing up for yourself in, in a toxic workplace, making the call to go and finally start seeing a counsellor. Maybe the hardest thing you've done is you've had to lead through a crisis, or maybe you've had to sell your dream home. Maybe you've made it through chemo, or you've broken an addiction and you know, are staying sober. The, the range of possibilities is, is immense, isn't it? Isn't it? And we can forget, I think, that you know, because our life is surrounded by comforts and wonders that previous generations you know, would have never known, we can sometimes forget, though, that life is fundamentally hard. We live in a broken world, and it's unavoidable that, that it, it intrudes and it impinges on us, and so we have hard things that we have to go through. I mean, Jesus says it quite simply. He says, in this world you will have trouble. And here's the thing too, that for all the hope and comfort that it gives us, being a Christian can actually add to the trouble and the hardship of our lives. For one, it brings its own hardship because you know, in the face of ridicule and judgment, exclusion and persecution, you know, just simply for, for trying to live faithfully as a Christian, that can set us seemingly against the people around us. For another, there's our own internal sense of struggle because we know what it is that God calls us to and the life that he calls us to, and we want that, but we know that we still fall so far short. We're still bound up in sin, both kind of actively and passively, and because we're not content to stay that way, we have trouble within ourselves. But also, being a Christian and holding on to faith, it can actually just complicate our experience of, of hardship and of suffering. I mean, it can simplify it, yes, because through it all, we just hold on to our, to our anchor and we stay secure and trusting that he will see us through it. So it, it can simplify us, but it can also bewilder us as we want to know, God, what is it that you are up to here? Why are these things happening and in the moment, we have no idea why, but we only have struggle and confusion and doubt. And so being a Christian and being a Christian in the world is, is hard. And so it's to his followers specifically that Jesus says this, that in this world you will have trouble. It's not just some you know, generic you know, Zen Buddha kind of statement that life is hard, but, but it's, a, it's a word that comes from Jesus specifically to his followers to say, in this world you will have trouble. But if you're familiar with the verse, you also know that this is not where the verse ends. The full stop does not actually go there. Because Jesus goes on to say, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And the book of Hebrews, in some ways, could then be seen as kind of this lengthy meditation on, on the second half of this verse. The book of Hebrews, its purpose is to help the original readers and us today to take heart, to keep courage, to, to stay strong, because the one that we follow and the one who lives in us has overcome. 
And we see this particularly as we come to our passage today in Hebrews 12. See, recognizing that their lives were hard, recognizing specifically that they were hard because they were Christians and they were facing persecution, the writer encourages them in the midst of what they're facing to keep on saying yes to Jesus and to keep on enduring in their faith. And so his words are then an encouragement to us as well, for us to likewise persevere with Jesus. And so the question I think today's passage answers is how, how do we endure? How do we keep on holding on to faith? How do we keep on moving through hardship, suffering, pain and struggle? Well, the passage tells us, I think, at least four ways. We do so by keeping our eyes on Jesus, by understanding God's purpose, by exercising effort and by remembering our future. So let's dive into it. It's in Hebrews 12 and let's read again just the first few verses. They say to us, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Now, the writer likens living the Christian life to, to a long-distance race. And in the stands around the, the track, watching on is this great crowd of witnesses, heroes of the faith, like those who were listed in the previous chapter. And I grew up understanding this as like, you know, there's all these people watching you, so you better not let them down. A bit of healthy bit of guilt. <laughs> but that, that was kind of the, the understanding that I had of this. There's, I mean, look at all these heroes that we just considered, you know, Gideon and Samson, you know, all these ones. And so, I mean, they're amazing. So, I mean, you, you got something to live up to. You better, you better perform. You better do it. It's a bit like um, we, went to, we went to just one football game this year. Uh, and through the first half, Richmond, who, who is our team, they were, they were losing. They were not doing well. And I sat there just going, great. We've come all this way. We've paid all this money. We've come to see this stupid game. And our team is not even going to win. And I was, I was so, oh, so flat and deflated. Now, thankfully, they came back and, you know, I left cheering. Like, it, it, was, it was good. They won. But that's, that's how I had understood this, this cloud of witnesses, that as I lived my Christian life, I needed to be reminded, there are people who have paid money to watch me, watch me perform, so I need, to, I need to live up to it. There's all these amazing people watching on, I, I better not let them down. And as someone who likes to please and to not disappoint people, I mean, that, that was a motivation for me. But it's not a very gospelly, grace-filled motivation, is it? And, and so, I mean, that idea, it probably is in there, but I actually think the writer is going for a different motivation. It's not that they are witnesses of, of our race judging our performance, because while they're, they're in the stands watching our, our race, I don't think that's where the emphasis of their witness lies, because they are witnesses not so much of our race, but for our race, because they are people who have already run it before us. Their very lives are a testimony or a witness of faithful endurance to the end. They show us 
that perseverance is possible, that they can, that you can face the hardest of things and still hold on to faith and still continue on and still make it to the end. That yes, it gets hard, but you can keep going. They are witnesses for us, to help us, to encourage us, uh, and you know, an example that lets us know that this can be done. And so with their example and their encouragement before us, the writer says, we're to throw off what weighs and slows us down. Now, the, the ancient athletes, they, they competed naked. So it's not that their clothing was bad in and of itself. Um, I had to pick a picture that was censored, so it's all good. <laughs> but, but their clothing was then just this, this extra weight. It was just this thing that got in the way of their, their performance. And so they would take it off before a race so that they would run unencumbered, unhindered, that nothing would get in their way. And so for us, maybe the thing that hinders us is Netflix. Maybe it's staying up late. Maybe it's, it's that friendship. But these are just the things that hold us back from giving Jesus our all. And also we're told that we need to get rid of the sin that, that tangles us uh, and makes us fall over. And now this is more kind of maliciously and directly damaging to our race. And so it might be, might be lust, it might be dishonesty, it might be arrogance, it might be gossip, it might be anger. Whatever it is, this is the thing that consistently trips us up. And so if we want to endure and make it to the end of the race, we'll be well served to, to get rid of this in our lives. And so without these things that make our race harder, we are then to fix our eyes on Jesus. We are to consider him who endured such opposition so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. And so this then is the first way that the writer gives us here for enduring to the end and getting through the difficulties that we're facing, that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. Now, I was thinking about that because that's a very nice Christian Sunday school answer. So I was thinking about it and going, like, practically, tangibly, how does, how does keeping my focus on Jesus, how does that actually help me get through this thing that I'm, I'm going through? How does, this, how does keeping my eyes on him actually help me persevere to the end? And the obvious answer, given you know, the analogy is a, is a racing context, is that he's the prize and that, uh, that we're rewarded with when we cross that finish line. And what a great and a glorious prize. Hosanna in the highest, we've already sung. The, the letter has been emphasizing over and over again just how great Jesus is. And so the thought of attaining him in all of his fullness, then that's, that becomes a motivation for us to keep going. But I think there's more to it than that. Because if, if he's there as the prize, then he's also there watching on too. So within the, the great cloud of witnesses is also the one who is greater than all, Jesus. And he too, like they did, he, he endured to the end, enduring even the cross and all the physical and the spiritual anguish of that. And as Christians, we now have the very spirit of Jesus living in us. And so as we consider him who endured, we can have confidence that we can too as he lives in us. But I also think it's more than that because we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, not on Christ, not on Messiah, not on Savior, not on King, not on Lord. Fix our eyes on Jesus. It's Jesus as a human person like us that we're to focus on. 
Yes, he is all those other things, but we're not focusing on his role, but on, on him. Because throughout this letter, the author has been at pains to show the ways in which Jesus, for all of his greatness, is actually just like us. And so he's able to perfectly empathize with our struggles. So as we consider Jesus, it's, it's not that he's this disembodied spirit floating around who's never had a hard day in his life. It's not that he's so far removed from the human experience that he has no idea what it's like. It's not that he's sitting in heaven just putting this unrealistic and uncompassionate expectation on us. No, he's Jesus. And so we are able to consider him who endures so that we will not grow weary and lose heart because he knows what it's like for us. He knows the pain of betrayal and isolation. He knows the ache of false claims and judgments against him. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood and to be ridiculed. He knows the uncertainty of of homelessness and of not knowing where his next meal is going to come from. He felt the, the grief of a friend's death, as well as the joy of a good party. He knows the distress of doing good only to have that thrown back in his face. He knows the desire, uh, he knows the wrestle rather of desiring to do God's will, but also desperately wanting anything else other than that. He knows the experience of abandonment by God when the heavens are silent. He knows the reality of intense physical pain and the spiritual burden of sin. Jesus knows. So he's not looking on us, unrealistically expecting us to make it to the end. Rather, he's alongside us, knowing just how flipping hard it can be. And he's helping us to run and he's cheering us on. And so we need to keep our eyes on him more than on the difficulty of the race. We need to keep listening to his voice in our ears saying, you can do this, I'm with you, I will see you through. More than feeling the, focusing on the pain in our legs or or, whatever it is. We got to fix our eyes on Jesus and keep our focus on him and he will help us endure because he is there knowing what it's like, knowing what we need and running with us to see us through. Now the challenge can come though, When we're looking to God and we're in the midst of our suffering and our struggle and whatever it is, and we're looking to God and we want him to stop what's going on or we want him to at least explain what we're going through. And actually at those times it can become really hard for us to keep our eyes on him because we feel like he's let us down. We become disillusioned with him. And so rather than prompting us to fix our eyes on Jesus, our hardship and our struggle can make us to turn away from him. And the writer knows and understands this kind of inclination of us. And so as a second means of enduring, he helps us to understand God's purposes. Let's read on from verse 4. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of death. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son... Do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. 
Endure hardship then as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Now, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. So how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Now, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Now, I do not want to be overly simplistic or trite as we discuss this section, but there is a truth here that does give us a perspective for us to hold on. And that is that the hardship and the suffering that we're going through, it's not a punishment, but it's a discipline. It's not to beat us down, but it's to grow us up. So we've already considered how Jesus offered himself as the greatest sacrifice for sin, as a result of which our sin is already and completely dealt with. So Jesus has borne it and borne its punishment on our behalf. So so then if God were to punish us, it's it's like the second punishment for the for the one crime. And so it would be fundamentally unjust. And so I know the hardships and the suffering that some of you are going through at the moment. And so you need to hear and to know that as you struggle through it, as you wrestle with faith in the midst of it, that this is not God's judgment on you. This is not some punishment on you for some sin that you committed five years ago or five minutes ago. He's not beating you down for something you've done. Jesus has already taken all the punishment. This is not judgment, punishment and wrath on you. But rather, God is treating you as his children. For he disciplines the ones he loves. So again, knowing the hardships and the sufferings that some of you are going through at the moment, you need to hear and to know that God's love is faithful and true. And it is still being expressed towards you even in this because he is somehow acting for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Now I know that's a hard pill to swallow. Because in the midst of it, we do not see the good. We do not see the purpose. And from our perspective, man, I'm not sure holiness is worth it. From our perspective, we're like, man, God, if if this is the cost of growth, I'm not sure that I really want to pay it. And I get it. And if I was sitting across from you one-on-one pastorally, the last thing I'd be asking you is, so what do you think God is teaching you in this? the last thing I'd be asking you because in the midst of it it's just hard and it's bewildering and it sucks but those of us who are parents we know the tantrums and the carry on of our children when we've had to discipline them when we took their phones off them for a week when we refused to let them go to that party or that event with with their friends when we made them use all of their pocket money week after week to pay for the window that they broke 
Man, we were the worst, weren't we? But we were acting with love. And we were acting for a greater purpose than their immediate comfort. And the writers to the Hebrews says, God is the same, but actually far, far better at it. See, no parent wants their child to remain immature and childish. And that's the complaint that's already been leveled against these, these Hebrew Christians, that they should be onto solid food, but they're still just drinking milk. And by their own choice, they keep on drinking milk. Milk's good. I love milk. Why not just keep going with milk? By their own choice, they're, they're comfortable where and how they are, and they wouldn't grow on any further. And so God takes action to discipline so that, them, so that they're forced out of their comfort and their stasis. And then in that place of loving discipline, they can grow to new levels of never-before-anticipated holiness and intimacy with God with a, a harvest of righteousness and peace. They wouldn't have chosen it for themselves. And to be honest, neither would we. And so God has to act in love and for our good, though it is painful at the time. Um, you know that great verse of hope Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29? God speaks and he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for you to prosper and to not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Well, when, when is this verse said to the people of Israel? It's said when they're in exile in Babylon, having been defeated and taken away from their homeland to an entirely another country. And so why were they in exile? Because they were consistently unfaithful to God. And so God, acting for his good purpose in their lives, he disciplined them so that they would then come back to him and walk with him as he intended and as would be for their good. And so then these plans to, to prosper them and to give them a hope and a future, when, when were they going to take effect? after they'd been in exile for 70 years. Now that's a long time to endure. But God was loving and he was working all through that time, just as he is for us in our sufferings today. So if we view what we're going through as a punishment, then of course we're going to give up on our race. But if we can see them as the loving actions of a father who is treating us as legitimate and beloved children, well, then we might not agree. We might not understand. We may not want it. We may not enjoy it. But we can, in the midst of it, yet strengthen our feeble arms and our weak knees and persevere and continue along the path. And I think you know, I don't say any of this lightly or flippantly. None of this is said to suddenly to make anything easier to understand or to deal with, nor, nor to disregard your struggle. But it has to be said for us to, to be reminded that God does, he does have a purpose. And it is for our good. And so lean in, keep on putting one foot in front of the other, even if it's only just to stop yourself from falling as you stumble along the race because he is the good shepherd who is with you as he leads you through the darkest valley and he will lead you out the other side as well so the writer encourages us that we can endure because we understand that God 
has a loving purpose behind what we're going through. But enduring is about more than just having that, you know, right understanding in our head, isn't it? Um, you know, it's not that we, oh, okay, yep, God's doing something good, and so, bam, I, yeah, I'm through and I'm good. It's, it's like when, when you run a marathon, there's the point where, where you hit the wall and everything within you just wants to, to give up. You don't know, you know how you're going to get through and how you're going to finish. Now, you don't get through that moment just by going, oh, this is the wall, I understand it, I'm good, and so, bam, I'm done. So I've been told anyway. <laughs> not speaking from experience. Because it's not just about knowing it. You have to actually keep on... You have to keep on going. You have to keep on exercising the effort to get through it and to break through. And so likewise, we can't just continue in our faith just, just knowing the right stuff. We need to actually put in effort. And so the writer says in verse 14, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, because without holiness no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest child. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Now, I won't spend as long on these last two points. But what we see here, the, the writer calls us to make every effort and to see to it that no one falls short. See, just because we're a Christian, we won't just automatically make it to the end. Because like Esau, we can get sucked in by, by the short-term benefit, by the easy fix, and we miss the long-term gain. See, Esau, if you remember his story, he was the, the eldest son, and he had been out hunting in the fields, and he came home, and he was starving. Like, think of your teenage son after he's not eaten for an hour. Like, he was... <laughs> He was about to die. He was that hungry. And Jacob's there cooking up a pot of stew, and he says, Jacob, give me some of, some of the stew. And he goes, well, if you give me your birthright, if you give me your inheritance. And, and Esau is at this point of, I am so hungry that I'll give you anything. Yep, take my inheritance. All good, just give me that food. And so he eats it. But then it comes to that point, doesn't it? He had that immediate satisfaction, but then he lost out on the inheritance. And so when that came, it's like, <laughs> just give me it. And it's like, no, you've already lost it. You've missed out on it. And so just like he did in his state of hunger, we too can give anything to escape an experience of pain and hardship. We want, we want the easy way out. We want the quick fix. You know, my marriage is hard. My wife's just at me all the, all the time. So I'll, I'll just cheat with this other person who actually makes me feel good about myself. We want to lash out or, or to cut ourselves off from, from this other person because, man, they, they deserve it. And gee, it will make me feel good. Or even just trying to make sense of everything that we're going through from a position of faith that just makes it so complex and confusing and bewildering. So maybe just letting go of Jesus will just make things simpler. At least I'm not trying to reconcile how a good God could let this stuff happen. Maybe I'll just give up on that. And so we're warned against taking the quick and easy fix. So rather we need to see the bigger picture that we'll talk about more in a moment. And then keep on doing the work to get through. 
for Esau to have actually cooked himself a meal rather than you know whatever it is. But, but notice within this that, that we don't do it alone because we're not running this race alone. There's this crowd of witnesses cheering us on, but there's also a crowd of other runners around us who, who help us to get to the finish line. They're seated next to you, behind you, in front of you, all around you. And as we and they together, we work to see to it that no one falls short. We are helped to endure and to continue to exercise the effort that it takes for us to get to, to do so and to get through to the finish line. And so we exercise effort for ourselves to get to the end. And we also exercise effort for the sake of others' perseverance too. Let's skip then to verse 28 as we come to the last way that the writer gives us for how we endure. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The verses preceding this one remind the Christians again about just how much greater Jesus is than their old ways under Judaism. At Mount Sinai, where, where the law had been given to them, God's distance and separation was emphasized. With even Moses, who was the mediator of that old covenant, he, even Moses saying that he was trembling with fear before God. But we've not gone to that mountain. We've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And we come not with fear, but we come with joy. We don't stand off at a distance, but we draw near with confidence to receive the grace and the mercy that we need in our time of need. And we do so along with all others who have trusted in Jesus as their mediator and so have been cleansed of their sin. And so our future is one of hope and of joy and of security. We are receiving, he says, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We need to remember this because it means that our endurance is actually not resting on us. We're not all the way there yet. That's why we're still running. It's why we're called to endure to the end. The kingdom in all of its fullness has not yet come. But our endurance is made possible by remembering that future when Jesus brings the fullness of his rule and his reign to bear. Because what's a Caesar or what's a state premier in comparison to that? We, we are part of a kingdom with Jesus as the great king that is unshakable and immovable. It will not be overcome. It will not be defeated. And so, nor should we be, not in a guilt, pressure, ought to kind of should, but nor should we be because that kingdom is already active in us. And we endure as a manifestation of its reality in the here and now as we anticipate it in its future. We are already receiving this unshakable kingdom and it will come in fullness in the future. And so we're told, let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. To do so spurred on by the crowd who demonstrate to us that endurance is possible. Running with our eyes on Jesus, our good shepherd alongside us, cheering us on and encouraging us, helping us to get through. Knowing that God is, is lovingly working for our good, however little we understand it in the moment. Let's keep on running, exercising effort, 
both for our own sake and for the sake of the others around us and their own race and endurance. And to remember the nature of the greater kingdom that we're a part of, where, where Jesus is the greater king. We can endure, in short, as we continue with Jesus. So let's pray to him then together now. God, we come before you as your people. And we come in all of life's circumstances and trials and difficulties. God, for those of us who are not in the midst of them at the moment, who are experiencing joy and life and energy and positivity, God, we we give you thanks and we praise you for that. And we pray that uh, you are helping them to run with, with ease and with delight as they follow after you and live as a Christian through all things. But I'm also very aware, God, that there are others here who are in the midst of pain and brokenness and suffering and hardship. And your word speaks to to us today to help us to endure and to persevere. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen weak limbs, that you would... um, inject energy into feeble legs that you would sustain and uphold each of us wherever we are in our race of following after you. I pray that we would keep our eyes on you, Jesus. Keep our, you know, in the midst of everything that's going on around us and all the things that bewilder us and, and, and would overwhelm us. That we don't look at them, but we look at you, who has over, overcome the world. And that with our eyes fixed on you, that we, we keep hope, we keep strength, we keep endurance, because we know that you are with us. We know that you love us. We know that you are in us, enabling us, already bringing to bear an unshakable kingdom. And you surround us with others to help us. And so we bring, bring ourselves before you, Jesus. And where we've railed against you and resisted your work, um, God, we know that you can handle our cries like that. But where we've then been wrong or sinful towards you, we ask your grace to forgive us again. And in those places... May we receive your grace and your strength and your enabling, your hope, so that we would get through. May we turn our eyes towards you, Christ Jesus, in a way that's not just a, you know, denial of reality, but in a way that sustains us and sees us through. May we consider you, Jesus, who endured such opposition so that we do not grow weary, so that we do not lose heart, and so that we persevere to the end to run the race that you've marked out for us. We pray this for your sake, for your glory, and by your enabling, in Jesus' name. Amen.